Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Cobble. And today is one of those conversations that you start a podcast to have, right? I get to have guests on the show and interview them about stuff that I specifically need to learn about because I'm a commercial real estate investor. And so Ashley Tyson today has got, he's got a lot uh, to, to pitch for us and to discuss with us about Opportunity Zones. If you are not familiar with Opportunity Zones, you are in for quite the ride today because I think that they are one of the most interesting things that has happened in commercial real estate in the last decade, really, because it's 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 pretty big. So real quick on Ashley, he is a self-proclaimed Opportunity Zone Sherpa. I love that. You are the guide. You are the Yoda of OZs. Um, he's actually a practicing attorney, an experienced entrepreneur. He's co-founder of ozpros.com. So definitely go check that out if you are interested in figuring out more about OZs or how he can help you. Um, so basically what he does is he works with investors, developers, syndicators that may have current or future capital gains exposure. And that's what Opportunity Zones are created for. They are to help you actually mitigate or completely uh, dissipate um, those potential tax liabilities. So, uh, Ashley, that was obviously a very brief introduction of you and, and your background, but tell us a little more about you. Well, thanks, Tyler. I um, I like to call myself a reformed attorney, right? That uh, There you go. I try to practice law as little as possible, and I try to get in the game as much as I can, right, and actually do it. And, um, and, and so that's one of the things that we did within OZ Pros. Uh, you know, I have a passion for uh, helping business owners keep more of the money that they make. And that led me through a, a variety of different things that I've done, uh, including setting up a consulting company to specifically do that, to help business owners figure out how to put more money in their pocket when they exited. And I was at a CLE and I heard about Opportunity Zones and I was like, Man, that sounds like private equity in 1031 got married. I'm in. And so I popped up a website as kind of a test. And uh, within two weeks had, you know, about 150 people and, you know, almost $150 million worth of capital looking for deals. And I was like, wow, I think we're on to something. And so, uh, you know, ever since that was literally in May of 2018. And since then, I've done nothing but eat, breathe and sleep opportunity zones. And I'm for real. I actually have dreams about opportunity zones. It's kind of scary <laughs> sometimes. Uh, and, you know, uh, but I guess that's kind of when you know you're fluent in something. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I dream in quas, right? So, uh, you know, in QOZ, the Qualified Opportunity Zone, you're going to hear that a gazillion times today. So we've got all kinds of different acronyms, quas and quas and QOZBs and all that kind of stuff. But um, we'll try to unpack that to the extent that we need to. And, um, and you know, ever, ever since then, I've been excited about democratizing access to provide uh, folks that are doing the deals that make up the backbone of America uh, to give them the ability to be able to utilize opportunity zones and not just these billion dollar commercial real estate deals. And whether that's small mom and pop real estate developers, whether that's folks that are doing single family rentals or whether that's people doing operating businesses, you know, that's what our passion is at OZ Pros. And so we, uh, we set up this process where people can do a strategy call and uh, as part of kind of their uh, initial journey. And it's, it's funny because I think that those strategy calls have been kind of the quickest way for people to figure out if their opportunity zone deal is going to hunt or not. 
as you can tell, I'm a, a little bit of a hunter and uh, I want to know if that dog's going to hunt as fast as I can, because if he's not, I'm going to put him back in the truck and I'm going to go on to one that is. And so our opportunity zone strategy call process has become a way to do that. We also set up kind of a, a, a OzWorks community. It's called the OzWorks group. And it's a community for folks that want to interact with other folks doing opportunity zones. And so um, we've, we've tried as many ways as we can to facilitate people, you know, understanding and getting to know opportunity zones. And inside of that community, we've got a four hour educational uh, course that people can do if they really want to unpack this and dive into the, the weeds and geek out tax wise, so to speak, then uh, we've got a course specifically for that. And inside of that, we've actually started doing a lot of consulting for folks in their CPAs too, to actually be, you know, the guiding factor about how to guide their CPAs through doing this as well. So excited to talk with you, Tyler, and see if we can't make your deal work today. That's great. Yeah, I was telling Ashley right before we went live that we've actually got a tower in Chattanooga that we acquired this year that uh, we have a few investors that are very interested in seeing if that can be converted. Uh, James is jumping in the live chat saying, thanks for discussing this particular topic. I love it. No problem, James. I mean, Ashley would probably agree with me. I mean, it's it's one of those topics that there's a lot of misinformation out there on. It's a very complex topic. And so uh, that tends to happen. And you know, we, we want to kind of walk through that and figure out if it may or may not make sense for you. Because there are some projects that it just, you know, an OZ may, may not make sense or you may not even be eligible, right? Like that's, there's a lot of confusion out there about that. So Ashley, before we really dive in, will you explain what an Opportunity Zone is and why it was created? So Opportunity Zones, and I, I'm going to share my screen because I think that uh, yeah. the visuals, I'm a visual learner. So I'm going to go it. to sharing my screen if that's okay. You can do it. Um, and uh, I'm also not going to do this in the PowerPoint presentation mode because I like to be able to bounce around my slides in this according to kind of what we need. And so um, forgive the, the, you know, the excess stuff around the PowerPoint, but I think it's a lot more conducive to actually being effective in what we're communicating. So what is a qualified opportunity zone? So a qualified opportunity zone is a low income census tract or a tract that was designated by governors uh, pursuant to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. So in buried in about 1700 pages of law was three pages that discussed opportunity zones. And inside of that, they gave the governors the ability to designate up to 25% of their low income census tracts as opportunity zones. And so the governors got together with their uh, economic development folks, with their mayors and with everybody else to figure out which ones of those they were going to designate. And then by May of 2018, they had to actually have those in. And then this was the resulting map. And as you could tell, you know, out here um, and actually, I, can you see my. Yeah. All right. So we got a cursor on here now, which is great. So out here, out west, you got big, you know, you got bigger. Uh, opportunity zones, namely because the census tracts are, are bigger. You know, you've got less density, more space. And so and then as you go east, right, where the population is a lot more dense, the opportunity zone tracts are smaller. So it's all tied to census tracts. And so that's unfortunately where you can run into, okay, this is an opportunity zone, but literally right across the street, which looks just as dogged and just as kind of gnarly um, or maybe even worse a, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And so 
unfortunately, it, you know, they had to pick 25% and that's what they were capped at. And so as a result, you know, you've got some that made it and some that didn't. Now, one of the things that can be done is that you can actually have a property that straddles inside of a zone and part of it outside of the zone, as long as 51% of it's in the zone. And that can actually be separated by a street or a, uh, a, a stream. So it allows a little bit of flexibility to pull some stuff in, maybe that's across the street or whatever, if you have uh, a bigger portion that's inside of the zone. So that's how they were created. So they were, you know, they were created literally back in 2017, got designated by the governors. And now you, know, you can find this map that's out there. It's at opportunitydb.com slash map. And inside of that, you can search your address. And then if it comes up blue, then that's your, you know, your magical spot. So how about we talk about the benefits? You want to hit those yeah. real fast? Yeah, absolutely. Right. What are the benefits? Why would somebody go through that? Exactly. So, and, you know, there are some hoops to jump through. It's not all that bad of a, you know, of a deal, but the three benefits are, and, and the reason why Congress did this is because they wanted to encourage money that was capped up in the stock market. The stock market was at record highs. And so they're like, okay, how can we get money out of the stock market and get it into underinvested areas that need it the most? And so they said, all right, let's, let's figure this out. And I got to hand it to them in three pages of legislation. They actually were effectively able to do that for the first time. in you know, really in congressional history, they got the attention of private capital then that are, that are now looking to do deals. So the first benefit, and, and this is part of their strategy, was this temporary deferral. So if you put your money into an opportunity fund within 180 days of the sale of whatever it is that you sold that generates that capital gain, well, it could be sale of property, that could be the sale of a business, that could be sale of a stock, or it could be the sale of a baseball card or gold or whatever, it doesn't really matter. You get to defer that gain until December 31st, 2026. So if you have invested, so, so the first thing was they're like, all right, let's get them an incentive to get them off of the sidelines to pull their gains out of something else, right? And go ahead and put it into this deal. So the first thing you get is the opportunity to not have to pay the taxes. So, uh, you know, in, re, in IRS and tax parlance, that's an interest-free loan from the government, right? And so, the government said, all right, let's actually give them some artificial deadlines in there, some incentives to make them get out sooner. And so what they said was, if you're invested by for five years prior to December 31st, 2026, which would mean 1231 of 2021, we're gonna give you a step up in basis when you go to pay those taxes at the end of 2026. So all of the taxes that you defer become due in 2026 which means that you're gonna to have to pay them in 2027, but it's okay because they're like, all right, listen, we're gonna knock 10% off if you get off the sidelines sooner. Now they had another 5% that was available if you were invested for seven years, but that deadline expired in 2019. And we know that it works because in December of 2019, I was crazy busy, it was ridiculous. We're talking one-legged man, ass-kicking contest busy. And so <laughs> we know that it works. And the 5% was literally half of what you now get on, according to the 10%. And so what, you know, what we're looking at and what I think is probably going to end up happening is we're going to have a significant amount of capital 
that's looking to get into these things by the end of this year. Particularly with the concern about capital gains increases, this is a way for folks to, to harvest those capital gains or if they've had a capital gain, to be able to defer the taxes until 2026. Now, unfortunately, they didn't lock and load the gain of when you actually put the money in and you're now gonna pay gains at the amount of the then current rate in 2026. So that's the one thing that stinks because we know that capital gains are probably gonna go up. The question is, is how much? And so I've had tons of conversations and tons of discussions with people about, well, should I do this now? Or should I look at, you know, potentially paying the taxes now while the taxes are really on sale? And, you know, my, my counter to that is always, let's look at the ultimate benefit of this. So first, you're gonna to get to defer the taxes. So the 20% that you would pay in capital gains, you're gonna to get to invest that into your deal and you're gonna make a return on that. Then you're also going to get a 10% reduction when you pay the taxes. So even if they do crank it up, that 10% is gonna bring it back down. But the big benefit is this step up in basis to fair market value after attaining the hold. And what that means is, is that 10 years after you've dropped your money into the QOF, when you go to sell any asset that's owned, a capital asset that's owned by the QOF, you're gonna get a step up in basis to fair market value. So whatever you sell that, uh, whatever you sell that investment for, whatever you, you know, you get trades at, that's fair market value. And you're going to get a basis step up to exactly that amount, which is really powerful because not only does it completely eliminate capital gains taxes, but it also eliminates depreciation recapture. And for you guys in the commercial real estate world, you understand how powerful depreciation uh, is, but then also how much of an ass chapper depreciation recapture can be when you sell prior to that depreciation run hitting. And so this completely takes that off the table. So what it effectively allows you to do is to use all of the depreciation inside of your commercial real estate deal to offset the income that's coming in off of that deal. And then when you go to sell it at the end of the 10 years to not have to recapture that depreciation. So go ahead. I know. Yeah, yeah, questions yeah, yeah. Real quick. I was going to say, so for, for anybody that's not familiar with the capital gains exposure or uh, depreciation recapture, what can those end up being like as a percentage wise? Well, so, you know, when you're, when you're in a typical deal, um, you know, and you've depreciated income from the property, right? As you're, uh, you know, and, and this could be a whole nother conversation that we could talk about, but you do it through a cost segregation study. And in that cost segregation study, you, uh, you, you grab all of the acceleratable depreciation that you can make bonus depreciation. So you, you basically take a building and you carve it out into the actual building shell, but then you have the roof, the HVAC systems, the floor, the cabinets, everything else. And then all of that stuff has a, you know, between a five, seven year or a 10 year depreciation schedule. It's called a makers, uh, an accelerated cost recovery system. And so when you then bonus depreciate that, you are offsetting that against income because it goes to reduce income either from the property or if you have basis, you can actually use it to offset other income that you have. And so when you sell and you have sold prior to when that depreciation schedule actually runs, 
because you're basically borrowing from your future tax self when you do that, right? You're, you're utilizing future depreciation in order to uh, offset current income. And then when you go to sell it and you haven't caught up with that, borrowing from your future tax self, you end up paying ordinary income taxes on it, whatever your ordinary income rate is. So not having to do that in the context of a opportunity zone deal becomes really powerful because it wipes that income piece. Yeah, that can be a lot in savings too. And you're when you're looking at like capital gains, I mean it's it's what around 20% right now and depreciation recapture is 25%. So you think about that, I mean when you close on a property, you've got that's a lot in taxes that you know you're able yeah, to defer with an OZ. And it depends on what you're doing inside of the depreciation recapture. If you it, it depends on what you wrote it off against, uh, you know, whatever your tax rate was there. Because you're writing it off against income, you then recapture it as income. And so not having to do that to your point is, is extremely powerful. So, and this is just a slide that just illustrates basically the, and, and so what this does is, is that I, we talked about a, a, a tax-free or an interest-free loan from the government. What it really is, is a negative interest loan from the government because they're paying you 10% reduction on your taxes. And so, when you take those two together and you put them side by side, if you had a million dollars and you sold it and then you reinvested that and you gain and then it grew to $10 million over 10 years, or actually it grew to $2 million over 10 years, where it basically doubled, right? And we put one in a qualified opportunity zone deal and we put one in just a regular investment. And we're assuming that that investment just doubles for both of these, right? The key is, is that you're investing a full million dollars on this one, as opposed to 762,000 on this one, because capital gains is 20%. But if you're above $500,000, you got to pay the net, the net uh, in, or the net investment income tax. I think it's net on the first one, but anyhow, it's the net, the NIIT, and that's 3.8%. It's basically the Obama tax, right? Um, and they, uh, that in for kind of larger taxpayers in order to bump up the capital gains rates for those uh, for those higher taxpayers. And so what you get is you get to invest that instead. And then when you go to pay the taxes, this is assuming that the tax rate stays the same, you're going to get a 10% reduction on the capital gains taxes, which means you're going to pay 214,000 instead of the 238. And then when you pay out, this is where the big kicker comes in, is that you're not paying any taxes on the payout. This doesn't even illustrate the, you know, the, the, what you could do with the depreciation recapture, but ultimately the opportunity zone deal puts 54% more into your pocket than a non-opportunity zone deal. And so, you know, in, you know, in realist, commercial real estate, you know, when we're talking about, we're hunting basis points, right? Relative to yield right? Anything that we can do in order to get basis points on our yield, like little tweaks and stuff that, you know, that happen when you're talking about this kind of juice to the return. I mean, that's real estate investor nirvana. I mean, it's unbelievable what the difference is. So, uh, you know, the, I yeah, I mean, and, and as a as a <laughs> yes, uh, and as a deal yeah, sponsor, glad, it makes right? it a that's lot a, easier. That's a little trick that I learned, I picked up from Tony Robbins. Right, put it seven p.m. every day on my phone. It goes off and it says, "You're truly blessed because of the family you got, because of the friends you've got, and the business that you get to do every day." 
And it's just a healthy reminder for me to reset and say, all right, I'm going to take that into my, uh, into my evening with my family. Yeah, that's it. Live a, live a life of gratitude. That's exactly right. Yeah. And when you're, when you're a deal sponsor going through this, I mean, 54% more capital return to the investors makes it a lot easier for you to sell your projects. I mean, investor capital is going to flow to them. Exactly. And, and each deal is going to be different, but that's one of the things that uh, deal sponsors need to be able to do is they need to be able to show the net after-tax benefit to their investors in addition to showing what the deal, the overall deal is going to do. And so yep. what I like to see in you know the deals that I look at is I want to see the overall project pro forma and I want to see the overall kind of returns that the project's going to produce. And then I like to see the specific uh, IRR for the investor and then what the net after tax IRR in project multiple is. And that can be really powerful, particularly because most deals you don't show what people are going to pay taxes on. Right. And so when they're looking at deals side by side, if they're saying, OK, this is a non opportunity zone deal, they're saying, all right, I'm going to make 14 or 15 percent on this deal on an IRR basis. But then they're not they're thinking about that as just the deal. They're not factoring into the fact that they're going to pay taxes on whatever that is. And within an opportunity zone deal, you're showing what the net literally in their pocket is of what they're going to keep. And a lot of opportunity zone deals can get you north of that 15% IRR, even with a healthier sponsor promote. And so you're able to walk them through, listen, this is what a normal deal would be, but this is what you get with your, it's kind of like those 80s commercials. Uh, you might be a little bit too young for that, but this is your brain. <laughs> this is your brain on drugs, right? <laughs> so uh, anyhow. All fried. Didn't they, the, weren't they like scrambling eggs or frying eggs in a pan or something like that? Exactly right. <laughs> and, and, and I think that I think that Nancy Reagan even did one, right? She had like one of like a cast iron frying pan and it was like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was the champion of dare. <laughs> she was, man. Just say no. Just say, Just say no. no. Oh, that's awesome. So, hey, David is saying hi, guys. David, what's going on, man? Thanks for joining in. Um, one of the things that um, that I like to do, and this is, uh, I, I, I use this in pretty much all of my presentations, and this is what I call opportunity zones on a page, right? This is the generally the overview about what you have to do. And so I thought it would be, uh, it, I think it would be beneficial for your uh, for your listeners and for your watchers to be able to your audience to be yeah, able to go through the process. What has to, yeah. What has to happen in order to do an opportunity zone deal. So awesome. Um, I'll go through this and I'm going to go through it fairly quick and then we can unpack the questions and then we can maybe uh, look at how we can take this piece and we can apply it to your deal. And we'll go through an example of, of the questions I'm going to ask and the different factors that you're going to need to be cognizant of when you're looking at how you do a deal. That's perfect. And is, for, for everybody that's joining us live, feel free to ask any questions that you have about Opportunity Zones yeah. in the live chat. Ashley and I will get to them as soon as uh, we, we get through all of this stuff. So the first thing is, is that you have to have a capital gain. Now, I, you know, in I've got a, a fortunately through the relationships that we had through uh, Jimmy Atkinson, who's the host of the Opportunity Zones podcast. We've had the chance to be able to interact with a fair number of people that are involved in the legislation and in the ongoing kind of modification to the legislations. 
And what I've asked them to do is I'm like, listen, if we can make this so you don't have to have a capital gain, we could have massive amounts of money going into opportunity zones. But for whatever reason, the, you know, the, the drafters, I guess it was because they really wanted to focus on getting money out of the stock market. You have to have a capital gain and it's got to start with a capital gain that goes into your QOF within 180 days. So that 180 day clock starts as soon as you receive the capital, if it's a stock sale or if it's a personal, uh, you know, something that you own individually. If it's something that you own through an S Corp or an LLC, that 180 days starts on the partnership tax filing deadline, which is 315. And so if you've owned it through a S Corp or through an LLC, you've got till September 11th of the following year to put that into a qualified opportunity fund, which then allows us to get really creative, right? And to go all the way back. So right now, if you had a sale anytime after January 1st of 2020, through a partnership or an S corporation, I can drop that money into an opportunity fund and I can save you the capital gains taxes on that sale. And we can use that as the equity to start your deal. Now, Ashley, so, that's not treated like uh, 1031 exchange capital, is it? Where you have to hire a qualified intermediary, you can't touch your capital. I mean, how does that look? Is it just within 180 days, doesn't matter? I tell you what, man, that's a great question. I, I need to have you like teed up on all these presentations <laughs> because it, that's a fantastic one. Uh, the, the beauty of this program is that there's no QIs involved. There's no permission that you have to get. You have to do it. Beautiful. And, you know, accordingly, because you don't have to ask for permission, you have to build an audit trail, right? So it's all about your audit trail and it's all about how organized your audit trail is. And so that's one of the things that you really want to pay attention to is creating your audit trail. So for purposes of how you can prove the stance that you took on this. But to your point, Tyler, you do not have to, uh, you, you don't have to go and ask permission. You don't have to run this through a QI. And the beauty of that is, is that you don't have to trace proceeds. And so you could have spent that money on, you could have taken that gain from the sale of a house or a commercial property and you could have dropped it into Bitcoin or you could have put it into uh, Ethereum or whatever, right? And now that you're looking at this, you're like, oh, wow, I, I had a gain back then. I want to see if I can you know, put this into a fund. Well, you can take where proceeds from wherever you have them, right? As long as it comes in cash and it gets into the QOF bank account within the 180 days, you're good to go. So one of the things that we can do and one of the things that we've done for investors in the past is we've actually taken loans from their uh their stock portfolio and we've margined their stock portfolio uh we've dumped it into their qof uh and then you know during the period of time while you're looking for a deal you can actually loan the money back out to yourself and so we've been able to cycle the money back to themselves so they can pay off the loan on their stock portfolio and then they've got their money into the uh, qualified opportunity fund within the 180 days. Wow. We've also, um, you know, some of the folks that I've dealt with, they were like, well, I don't have a capital gain and I don't want to sell my positions in my stock right now. And so what we do is we sell their stock at 9 a.m., we buy it back at 9.01, trigger the paper gain, and then they can take that paper gain and make the investment into the fund. Now they do actually have to move the cash, right? You actually got to, have cash that lines up with that gain. 
but they're able to pull it from somewhere or, or, or get a loan on their, uh, you know, on their portfolio to, to be able to drop it into the fund. So what's a fund? A fund is a partnership or a corporation formed for the purpose of investing in opportunity zone property. And so uh, it, it literally is just an LLC taxed as a partnership. And so we, sort, we set these things up all the time. So when we originally founded OZ Pros, we, uh, we, we, we had aspirations in the legal zone for opportunity zones. So we had this do-it-yourself program. The problem was is that inside of the do-it-yourself, there's some nuances about ownership on this. And so people were uh, putting the wrong information into our form software. And when you put in wrong, <clears throat> wrong entry results in wrong output, right? Yeah. And so uh, User error. we ended up having to basically go the done-for-you route but we still use our software. And so we literally churn these uh, LLCs out. I think we've created around 800 of them thus far. And so, um, wow. you know, it's really easy to do. It's really easy to set up. One, and quite frankly, one of the things that we do, right? So we've got an educational product that specifically sets out, right? What you need when you form these, right? You need uh, QOF articles with uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act language. You need an operating agreement uh, or bylaws if you're a corporation that has the same language in it. Uh, we belt and suspenders it with a compliance resolution. And then you need to get an EIN showing that you're uh, taxed as a partnership. And then you just need to go get a bank account for your QOF. And you know, and Tyler, I'm happy to share these slides with, uh, with you and with your audience as well. And uh, you know, I mean, you could literally set this up on your own with these slides, right? And you need the same thing for a QOZB, and I'm gonna to get to that in a second, but it's really simple to set these up. And so we just do it, we do it, we do it correct. We've done a bunch of them, but I mean, certainly anybody could, uh, you know, can make this happen themselves. Yeah, I've always so, found in, in real estate that just hiring the professionals that know what the hell they're doing is always the best way to go. It's, it's just, it's not worth learning something new. There you, there you have it, folks, from the horse's mouth, man. Right? Yeah. Hire the professionals. And I'm going to raise my hand as the professional on this one, right? Yeah. But, but, but you guys can determine that after this uh, presentation. So inside of your QOF, once you put the money into your QOF, that's what starts your 10-year clock, right? It's the day that you drop the cash into your QOF. You can, you can invest cash into your QOF all the way up until December 31st, 2026, but each tranche of capital that goes in is gonna reset this 10-year clock for that particular tranche of capital. So, you know, there's that then leads to lots of different strategies about vintages of funds and different things like that, and nuances that we can kind of talk through from a strategic standpoint. But that's the magical date of when you get your cash into the QOF, that's what stops the 180 days on this clock and starts the 10 years on this clock. Once the, the QOF has its money, right? And once there's money inside of the QOF, the QOF has to have 90% of its assets in qualified opportunity zone property. And that's determined by the last day of the first six month period and the last day of the funds taxable year. What that means in practical English is that if you set up your fund between January and June 30th, your first testing date is going to run somewhere between July 1st or July 31st and December 31st, because if you uh, your your first six months right is going to then push out accordingly into this time period. 
Now, the great thing about this is, and what you know, uh, the Treasury gave us and the IRS gave us was that even though you have a first six month testing period, if you continue to hold it in cash, you do not have to, uh, to acknowledge that and you don't have to factor that in when you go to test on that first testing date. And so what that effectively does and what that means is, is that if you set up your fund and fund it between January 1st and June 30th, that makes your first real testing date December 31st, because you're not gonna, you're gonna disregard any cash that came in during the previous six months. And then that pushes you to December 31st as your next testing deadline. The similar thing happens whenever you set up between July 1st and December 31st is that your first six month period is gonna happen sometime between January 1st and June, uh, and June 30th. But because it's either the last day of the first six month period or the last day of the funds taxable year, it makes December 31st your first testing deadline. And so you get to disregard that first testing deadline. And so what that practically does is that it makes your real asset testing deadline June 30th, right? And so that's for you to have 90% of your opportunity fund assets in qualified opportunity zone property. So let's talk about what qualified opportunity zone property is, right? And I think that there's, you know, a, a lot of people throw this out and I think that this is kind of common knowledge relative to this double the value of whatever it is that you bought. Well, the specific definition of qualified opportunity zone business property and a fund can either own that directly or it can own it through what we call a QOZB. But if it's going to own it directly, it has to hit these requirements. It's gotta be tangible property used in a trade or business acquired after December 31st, 2017 by purchase from an unrelated seller or by lease. There's two places where related parties uh, are uh, an issue in the opportunity zone law. That's on generating your capital gain. So you can't sell the hand turkey that you made in kindergarten to your mom for a million bucks and take that million bucks and start your fund, right? But you can sell stock to a third party investor and generate your capital gain that way. The other place is here of where you actually acquire your property from, because you have to buy that property from an unrelated seller. And so, that then is where we come into issue with people that have already owned property or they bought the property prior to December 31st, 2017. We've got some ways to skin that cat, but we're going to unpack that here after we talk structure a little bit. So those are the issues, right, about, uh, you know, related parties. And then the third requirement is that it's got to be original use or it must be substantially improved. Now, original use means that in order to be qualified opportunity zone business property, it's got to meet a use test. It means that it's never been put in service, right? That means it hasn't been depreciated, it hasn't been rented, and that it's as close as possible to the certificate of occupancy. Now, the IRS declined to make getting a CO a bright line test, but what they did say is that that's one of a number of factors. And so you want to be on uh, as far, as close to the CO as possible if you've already gotten it, right? And then if you buy it prior to it issuing, it's not a big deal. So, but the key is, is that it hasn't been put in service. Another place that this applies is abandoned buildings or any municipal foreclosure. 
will be considered original use by you just doing something to it, right? You don't have to substantially improve it. So if it was abandoned a year prior to 2017, or at this point, three years prior to when you bought it, and you're gonna to wanna to get an affidavit from the seller to that effect, then you could get to, uh, you get to consider that original use. If it's not original use, you must substantially improve it. And that means that during any 30 month period, and you get to choose when you want that 30 month period to start, you make additions to the basis equal to the existing basis of the improvements themselves. Now, let's talk about what that means in English, right? <laughs> so if you're buying this for a million dollars, right? And it, this is the piece of property here and the building itself is worth 250K, then you have to put $250,001 into the improvements. Now you could do that in a number of ways. You could add square footage. You could put solar on top of the roof. You could add an additional, uh, like an auxiliary dwelling unit or an additional structure. Or if you have contiguous property, you could build new on the contiguous property. But you have to do something that's going to increase the value of the buildings by uh, by equal to the existing buildings plus a dollar. Which now, was such a brilliant way for them to set it up, right? Because the whole intent behind creating opportunity zones was to improve these areas. And so they didn't want just people pulling all of their money out of the stock market, throwing it into property, and then sitting there and doing nothing to improve the neighborhoods in which these opportunity zones were. So I love that they have that requirement. I mean, that that's what makes this whole thing actually work. Yeah. And it's kind of cool too about how they, and, and it's mind blowing how fast they came up with this. And, you know, a lot of people in the industry were like, man, they haven't given us regs yet. That kind of thing. This is completely new law that they generated that they codified in three pages, right? Three pages. And then they figured out, all right, let's figure out how we can put some like limited guardrails around this so that people actually do what we want them to do, which is exactly what you just mentioned. We want to drive traffic and energy innovation. We want people coming to these areas and actually doing something. And so how can we uh, put some, you know, some rules around that to make that happen? And I got to hand it to Treasury, you know, with, I mean, there's a couple of things in there that I'm really pissed about, but all in all, man, they, they did a great job. Um, one of the things that they didn't give us, and we might as well hit this because this goes into this related party issue, is that if you own property that's in the zone, you can't sell that to a QOF, take the proceeds from that, and then reinvest it into the QOF. Unfortunately, they said that you cannot do that, that that's going to be a step transaction. And, you know, and, and accordingly, you know, it, it basically kind of blows how a lot of development deals get done because a lot of times people will contribute the land in mm -hmm. and then they'll be like, okay, that's my equity contribution. But in this case, if you do that, number one, you don't get the benefit of the tax situation. And then number two, the land can be considered non-qualifying because it has to be purchased for cash by a fund. And so I'll, I'll talk about some ways because I think that you may have some specifics re relative to that inside of your deal. And we could talk through some strategies that we've come up with to kind of work around that. Um, but uh, that was one of the things that they can give. So it's crazy that they wouldn't, it's crazy that they wouldn't allow that because it, you're right. I mean, I'm doing two development deals right now where the owners are contributing the land as equity into the project. 
And that's such a great way of going out and getting a project like that done. People do it all the time. So just excluding that part of the market is wild to me. The other thing, I've got a question. So one thing that I used to hear all the time is, oh, I can sell 90% of my property and then retain 10% and still take advantage of the opportunity zone. Is that true or was that just a rumor or something? I mean, I heard that all the time. Yeah, that's not true. So makes sense. You you could certainly participate. So you could sell 90%. Well, the other thing is, is that you can't really sell 90% of your property because an opportunity zone can't be a tick. So a fund and or a QOZB cannot be a tenant in common. And the reason why is, is that uh, uh, the, the property has to be used in a trade or business. And so whatever you're doing on the property actually has to be a trade or business. One of the other kind of uh, negative things that we got out of the treasury regulations, we got two bads, right? Lots of goods. The other one is, is that you can't be a triple net lease because they said that a triple net lease is not a trade or business. That's an investment. And so really? accordingly, yeah, how about that? Right. And so That's... you've got to get really creative about how you deal with triple net lease issues um, and, and and make sure that you're actively involved somehow in the actual ground. Right. Relative to making that to where you're actively involved in it and that you're not just collecting a paycheck from you know Dollar General. And so the because of that, you would not be able to sell a portion of your deal because you can't also be a tenant in common because a tenant in common by very definition cannot be involved in a trader business. It's gotta be an investment in a passive deal. Um, I used to do, uh, I syndicated 1031 deals back in a previous life. And that was one of the big issues was that we couldn't actively conduct a trader business in a tick deal. And so we had to come up with these master lease arrangements and all that kind of stuff. And so that's one of the things that you cannot do in a QOZB or a QOF is that you can't be a tick. And so if you were to keep, so if you had it in a, uh, in a, uh, an entity, you could effectively convert that entity into a QOZB. You could then receive uh, a cash investment into the QOZB, retain 10% of that, and you would be okay with that. But because you didn't start with capital gains going into a fund, you're not going to be eligible for the benefit. And yes, so it doesn't matter. That is specifically urban legend with what you heard. So, Ashley, going back to the triple nets, if you have a – so it sounds like an absolute net lease is, is an absolute no – but what if it's a, a standard like triple net where you hire a property management company that is managing the common area maintenance, like, like a shopping center, right? Because you as the landlord will still be involved because you're having to pay the taxes, pay the property management, all that kind of stuff. But then you're getting reimbursed by the tenants. Is that considered being active in the property? So one of the things that we recommend, so the, the IRS gave this this kind of complicated um, illustration of what would be okay, right? If you had a portion of a building, right, that was like the bottom floor and it was triple net, but then you had other ones that were, uh, you know, the second floor was gross lease. And then you as the property manager had an office inside of the building. And from that office, you actually managed it, that that would be considered an active trader business. And so the closer you can get to that, the better off you're going to be. I know that there's commercial shopping center deals that are getting done um, that, you know, that obviously have some component of triple net to them 
or triple net like. You know, so one of the things that you know that we do is we we be very careful about. Hey, let's not call this a triple net lease. Let's make this a gross lease. But then we'll have you know mechanisms in the lease to make the uh, to get reimbursed for what the taxes and insurance are going to be because you don't know what those are going to be, right? And so it's fair to share that cost with the tenant. And so we structure it to basically be a tie cam reimbursable instead of just cam. And then, you know, I think that that covers you. But the more that you can get in the direction of the active trader business, the better off you're going to be. So you could institute like uh, base expense stops and, and stuff like that to as, and keep it as a gross lease yet still get reimbursed as a landlord? Yeah, I think that that's okay. Okay. Now, if you're doing that on like a Dollar General and that's all you're doing and then Dollar General's handling that, I mean, I think that that's probably going to go in the, you know, that the IRS is going to have the better argument on that one. If you're doing it in the course of a shopping center that requires active stuff, right, where you're having to actively lease it on a regular basis and get it leased up and deal with all that kind of stuff, even though you're hiring a management company to do that, I think that that's okay. So let me go back to what we were talking about relative to you can you can own this, you know, whatever qualifies as qualified opportunity zone business property directly through your fund. But the problem is, is that if you do that, remember how we talked about that six month asset test? If you bring a load of capital into your fund, you're gonna have to expend that capital by those six month asset tests. And the maximum test that we showed, right, is you got max 12 months. In some cases you got six months, right? And so it becomes fairly difficult to figure out how you time your capital transactions into the fund to be able to deal with that. So once again, treasury to the rescue, they said, what you can do is you can own the real estate through an opportunity zone business instead, a qualified opportunity zone business. And if you, as soon as you invest your funds, your cash into a QOZB, you're gonna meet this 90% requirement. And then once you do that qualified opportunity zone business now has 31 months to spend the money under a working capital safe harbor business plan. So as long as you have a written plan of how you're gonna spend the money and you actually follow it, then you get 31 months to spend that money. Now that can be expended, extended up to 62 months if you're gonna have a substantial infusion of capital in month 31 or any time along the way, it's gonna get extended out 31 months for each substantial tranche of capital that you bring in. And so you can have up to 62 months to basically spend every last dollar and to get it to where it's actually producing revenue. Because once again, it's gotta be used in a trade or business. So if it's not producing revenue, it's not technically a trade or business. So accordingly, almost every single deal that we do, we set up a two-story house, right? We set up a qualified opportunity fund, which sits as the hold co, and then we set up a QOZB which sits as the opco. The reason why I call it a two-story house is that you cannot have a QOF that invests into another QOF. You can't have an attic. You can also not have a QOZB invest into another QOZB. So you cannot have a basement. But what you can have is you can have as many funds invest into one QOZB, or you can have one QOV, QOF invest into as many QOZBs as you want. 
So it's okay to go horizontal, not okay to go vertical. With the exception of the fact that if you want to have one QOZB and then you want to have uh, individual LLCs for liability protection, you can have 100% owned entities because those are disregarded for IRS purposes. So, Interesting. And, and the reason why, the reason why you can't have um, subsidiary QOZBs is because the QOZBs got a five-part test, and one of those tests is that you cannot have more than 5% non-qualified financial property. So let's hit that test real fast, right? So the first test is that 70% of your assets must be qualified opportunity zone business property. That's one of the other benefits of using a stacked, a double stack, right? A two-story house is that instead of 90%, we get 70%. And so what that allows us to have is a 30% bad asset store, right? And so we can use that in order to cure some defects. Wow, that really messed me up there. Uh, I got a little aggressive with my pen. <laughs> By the way, what do you think about my, uh, uh, my John Madden impersonations here with my little teleprompter? <laughs> it's great. I feel like I'm playing Madden 2004 again. Right? And uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to start into Pictionary, right? Uh, where we're going to do some yeah. illustrations on your deal. And you're going to have to guess what I'm drawing. Um, so... <laughs> The, that first test gets us a little bit of leeway on the bad assets. So it's a good thing, right? And that's one of the reasons why we use the, the, the double stacked approach. The other thing is, is that it also allows us to potentially acquire stuff outside of the zone that's gonna get the same benefit of all of the assets owned by the fund. And so that's a huge perk too. So if our QZB's got $10 million worth of assets, we could have $3 million outside of the zone and it's going to, uh, that's going to be legit. That's going to be okay. The second test is that 50% of your gross income must come from a trade or business occurring in the opportunity zone. I'm not going to get into the details of that because I think we're mainly talking about real estate, but any real estate deal that's in an opportunity zone, you're going to meet this test. If we want to talk about operating businesses, if somebody's got a question about that, happy to answer that. But generally it's about where your employees are located. If at least 50% of them are in the zone, then you're gonna be, you're gonna meet this test. The, the third test is that at least 40% of your intangible property needs to be utilized in the trade or business happening in the opportunity zone. And so any real estate deal is gonna meet this test hands down bar none. Um, where this is actually coming into play now is that I've got a lot of people that are combining opportunity zones with crypto deals and this is where that intangible piece comes in on the test. And so we've got to have a compelling reason about how you're utilizing the crypto inside of the trader business. And then, you know, if so, and it's few and far between where I've been like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'd run with it because I've had all kinds of crypto ideas, as you can imagine. I'm um, sure. And it's tough. It's tough to it's tough to cram the crypto peg into the opportunity zone square hole. But it, it, I, not saying that it can't be done. The fourth test is that no more than 5% of the balance sheet, and this is actually your qualified opportunity zone property, can be non-qualified financial property. So if you've got a million dollars worth of good qualified opportunity zone assets, you can only have $50,000 sitting in cash, stocks, bonds, annuities, uh, forward contracts, future contracts, that kind of thing. And so, that's one of the big things we've got to watch inside of the opportunity zone is treasury management. So does that mean 
So, so that means like you would, you can never have five percent cash on hand. So you cannot ever have. If you buy a million dollar pro- or a million dollar business, you can never have fifty thousand dollars in cash. Now, so the the test on this, right? So we can get into the details of it, right? And what is excluded as it is that it specifically says in the regs that reasonable amounts of working capital held in cash, cash equivalents or debt instruments are excluded from that calculation. Okay. Now, the question then becomes is what's reasonable amounts of working capital? And so the easiest thing to do is to just use that 5% as your baseline. And then inside of your industry, if it's common practice that you need to keep on hand a certain amount of cash for operational purposes, then you can deal with that, right? But the best rule of thumb is is no more than 5%. The other final piece is that you can't be a sin business. So you can't be a golf course, racetrack, massage parlor, hot tub facility, or off-premises alcohol uh, sales place. And so that's the, you know, kind of the general piece of what's excluded from opportunity zones in the form of a sin business. And where we've seen that kind of come to roost and come to bear is for brew pubs. Um, You know, they've got to be careful about how much they're doing for cash and carry sales. Um, but this is the five tests that you, uh, that you got to hit. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, if you do, then, you know, you're, you're good to go on these five tests that we talked about, you know, up at the top and those five tests are what was, what, what I put into the table. And it's really not all that difficult to hit those tests. Um, particularly in the lines of doing it through a qualified opportunity zone business. So it gives you some wiggle room relative to how you own it and your timing on when you've got to deploy the capital. So um, I know I went through fast and I know that was kind of like a fire hose as we were going through some of the, you know, some of the pieces of the tests for this. But, um, you know, what questions do you have from there? And then maybe we can dive into the weeds or whatever. I don't know how much time we've got here. Or what we got plenty of time. If you, if you want to talk for the next six hours on opportunity zones, we can hang out here and do it. (laughs) No, I mean, no no questions. I think, I mean, the presentation was great. I think it's really straightforward. I think as we go through a real world example, that'll probably help everybody understand it a little bit better. And also I need to figure that out for myself anyway. So, uh, wait, it looks like we've got a question coming in from Danielle. So 30% can be triple net leased rather than outside of the zone. Correct. So whatever is non-qualifying, you could. Yeah, you could absolutely use it to cover stuff that's, you know, otherwise not qualifying. Um, And whether that's outside of the zone or whether it's land that you've got to pick up from a related party. Um, And that's how we uh, that's usually how we get deals done where people are trying to contribute the land is that we put it into that 30 percent bad asset store. And if the improvements are going to be substantial enough, which they usually are, then you're going to be more than well off on that 70% test. And so what we do is we basically have it structured to where you get that and you ultimately take title to it over time as you get the improvements done so that that way it's not more than 30%. That's great. Okay, Ashley, um, what's the what's the best way to, to walk through this example? Just tell you kind of what we got going on. Exactly. You know, hit cool. me with, um, ex- you know, what the uh, what the current ownership is, that kind of thing. And I'll ask questions along the way. But, yeah, let's unpack it. See if we can't make it work. 
Let's do it, man. Okay, so we bought a nine-story office tower in downtown Chattanooga back at the end of January. Okay. Um, it was a 506B friends and family syndication. Yep. Um, we acquired the building for $1.8 million, And we're going to be converting uh, most of... Yes, sir. Okay. We'll be con- we'll be con- that was the total transaction was one point eight million, correct? That's correct. Yeah, we got a steal okay. on the building. It was like forty one dollars, forty three dollars a foot. Okay. So we'll be we'll be converting six floors into micro condo units. So thirty six for sale condos. We'll have two floors of micro office space and a ground floor of retail. So we're expecting okay. to spend somewhere between five and six million dollars in construction on the building. Okay. And that's pretty much it. I mean, it's it's a pretty straightforward syndication deal. We own it in an LLC. Uh, the management. What's the name of the LLC? One Seventeen Seventh Street LLC, something like that. All right. All right, and uh, all right. So you've got an LLC that's there, and you did a five or six B on it. Um, okay, so I'm going to share my screen here again. Cool. Or actually, am I still sharing? Yeah, let I'm me pull sharing. you up real quick. There you go. So, what do you think about my Pictionary skills? <laughs> it's great. All right. So what you unwittingly did is you created a QOZB unbeknownst to yourself right? Love it. And we run across that all the time. So I tell people, and I'm, if, if I can hammer one thing into your listeners, if you're going to buy something in an opportunity zone, if, if you got to take it down before you talk to us, buy it in an LLC, because I can fix that. If you buy it in your individual name, you're toast, because then it triggers this related party issue if we convey it into a QOZB afterwards. Diving even further into that, obviously consult your attorney, consult your CPA. There's no reason, in my opinion, you should ever be buying commercial real estate in your own name. So always talk to your professionals. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, this isn't, nobody's paying for this. So this isn't legal advice. I probably should have hit that disclaimer on the front. Yeah. But um, the, you know, the, what people are doing is they're buying stuff in their individual names so they can get Fannie and Freddie dead on it. And then mm-hmm. they're quit claiming it into their LLC afterwards. And they're trying to make that eligible and that it just, it won't work. It's a terrible so move. You just, yeah. You just got to find a lender that's willing to loan to an entity on the front end and take it down in the entity ahead of time. Um, you know, we could talk about the, 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 all of the, the bad things associated with, claiming into your LLC afterwards, right? Namely that due on sale provision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Don't want to trigger that to violate every time you do it. Right. So um, anyhow, so what you, uh, what you did is you, uh, you created a QOZB unknowingly. So now if you want to take advantage of the opportunity zone stuff, because you're going to have five to $6 million worth of improvements, you're very clearly going to hit the substantial improvement requirement. Now, the question is, is how quickly you're going to get that done. But it seems like you're probably going to get it done inside of 31 months, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we'll start construction probably in the next 60 to 90 days and we'll be done in less than 18 months. So, you know, you reduce that to writing, right? 
you might not even need to reduce it to writing. It just depends on how much you're going to pull in from your opportunity uh, you know, zone investors. But to the extent that you want to or that you need to raise additional capital, or have you raised all the capital yet? Not open? quite. We we have one tranche of capital that is a pretty significant chunk that is holding out to see if we can make this opportunity zone qualified. That's beautiful. That's beautiful because what what you cannot do, right? So as a QOZB, and if you're a QOZB, an existing one, and you want to bring in cash, right, in order to do a deal in the opportunity zone, you have to give a fund original issue stock or partnership interest for cash, right? So it's gotta be bought for cash at original issue. And where that becomes an issue is if you've got your cap table that's at 100% and you've got one investor or two investors or whatever that wanna take money off the table, you cannot do that, right? Because that would be buying the membership interest from them. Even if you run a redemption, right? And you run that through the QOZB, if it happens within two years, it's going to be a deemed redemption. And that's not that you don't want that effect because it's going to make it non-qualifying. So what you can do now is that you could go set up the uh, 117th Street QOF, right? Or, I mean, you could even set up, if you wanted to, you could set up the Cobble QOF. And you could bring capital gains money into that QOF, right? And then you basically place that QOF investment, right, into the QOZB for the tranche of capital that you still have outstanding. And so you're, I mean, it's actually fairly easy. So what you're just gonna need to do is just amend your 506B, uh, your PPM, to make it so that you're going to be able to, you're gonna wanna pick up all of the risk factors for an opportunity zone deal, but then you can make it, you can open it up to opportunity zone investors. And so by, you know, I mean, literally it's a, a fairly easy process for you. I mean, you're literally just going to create that QOF entity. Um, and when we do offerings, we specifically um, will do the offerings so that we can take money either into the QOF or into the QOZB. Because if you've got non-capital gains investors or you've got people that have their own qualified opportunity fund, that want to invest into your deal, you want to have the universe of those people that can come into your syndication. And so when we structure our offerings, and when I say we, this is the stuff that I send to uh, uh, some attorneys in Ohio to do, they specifically structure the offering so that you, the offering could be uh, taken in either at the QOZB or at the QOF level. Now, what you're then going to have to do is, and what I would say is, is that you're, you probably got your promote structured at the QOZB, correct? Correct. Right at the 117 7th Street level. We'll leave your promote in there, then come up here and just do like a minimal like uh, asset management fee or maybe even just the cost and expenses. Have that be what you're going to get inside of the QOF to run it for them. And then, you know, you just make the investment down into the QOZB through the QOF. And if you amend your offering to now include your QOF, you could open that up to other groups and other uh, capital gains investors, either through your QOF or through their already established QOF. So we set up QOFs literally, uh, you know, sometimes it's five, 10 a week that we do for people that want to set up their own QOF 
so that they can then make investments um, both into their own deals, but also into deals that are being run by professionals like yourself. And so um, this allows them the flexibility to be able to have their own, but then to be able to invest into guys like you. And then it allows you the flexibility to be able to accept investment from folks that are that have their own funds already established. So so it's really that easy. We just start a QOF, we amend our 506B PPM to allow opportunity fund investors and issue new stock and that's I mean well, you're going to you're going to issue so well you're going to ultimately end up doing the offering. So your capital gains investors are going to come through the QOF Right. Right. And so then once they put the money into the QOF, then your QOZB is going to make an offering to the QOF. You're going to and then your QOF comes in for that tranche that you have reserved for them. And then you take that cash and you use it for the improvements or for whatever it is that you're doing. And then you've met this requirement that it's original issue uh, partnership interest for cash. Right. And so, yeah, that's. Exactly. And so, I mean, it's really not that difficult. Now, what I would tell you is, is that you're going to need a professional uh, and a securities attorney that understands opportunity zones to add the risk factors into your PPM um, so that that way you're covered, you know, in case something goes sideways. I would also suggest looking into potentially buying some insurance to cover uh, any kind of IRS losses. Um, I've got a great insurance company that they write insurance that not only covers, it's not only DNO coverage, but it's also coverage in case the IRS says that your tax, you jacked it up tax wise. It basically covers, you know, they, they sell it in million dollar increments and that million dollars will go for cost of defense. And if the IRS ends up paying your uh, tax, you know, your tax advantage investors, it'll go to cover their loss. That's amazing. Um, Danielle is coming in with another question. In this case, did any non-capital gains investors originally invest in the building at the time of purchase? Yes, Danielle, almost every single investor that we had uh, was non-capital gains investor because we were not, we, we did not, while the property was in the opportunity zone, I didn't know anything about OZs when we first acquired this property. And it wasn't our pitch because it was a great deal to start. It was only afterwards when we got the question from an investor that wanted to place a significant amount of capital with us that we decided to start exploring this. It's a great question, Danielle. And so in your QOF and in, as you're doing an opportunity zone deal, this is the reason why you use the two story house, right? Because you can accommodate non capital gains investors into your QOZB and it doesn't create any kind of burden. If you pull non-capital gains investors into your QOF, that's gonna create what we call a mixed fund. And it becomes a little bit of a challenge because you have to actually track basis differently between a capital gains investment and a non-capital gains investment because a qualifying investment, because you've deferred the taxes on that, it starts with zero basis for tax purposes. But a non-qualifying investment, because it's coming in after tax, it starts with actual basis. So you then have to keep track of that at the QOF level. Whereas at the QOZB level, it's a little bit easier because you can, uh, you can keep track of that on your books inside of the, uh, of the QOZB. Because the QOZB just walks and talks like a normal company with the exception that it's got a QOF investor. 
And so when you, uh, it, and, and so Tyler, to your point, if you wanted to take, if some of your investors that came in, right, as you go to amend your offering and you're now saying, hey, we're gonna open this up to opportunity zone investors, what you could do is, is that let's say that I had invested into your deal, right? This is Ashley right here um, with my spiky hair. You can't see that I'm really six eight. Maybe I need to draw the legs a little bit longer. Uh, but um, you know, and then we got Tyler over here, and we got his hat. And I think I can maybe draw the hat here. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Looks good. Right. So we got Tyler that's right here as well. And we put in, we we put our cash into the QOZB. But man, we say, wow. Now we didn't we didn't realize this was an opportunity zone uh, opportunity. We want to get in on that. And so if you wanted to replace their money, what you could do is you could refund their cash and you could basically treat it as the repayment of a loan. And then they could take their capital gains and then drop it into the QOF. And then that cycles down to the QOZB. And if you needed to do it from a treasury standpoint, right, if it was easier for you to do it with their money coming in and then going out, it doesn't really matter the order of it. Now, what you'd want to do is then just document that to say, hey, they didn't realize that this was an opportunity zone investment. And so we're going to reclassify their original investment as a loan, right, that we're now going to repay instead, right, and or return of capital. It really doesn't matter to them because they've got basis in it and it's going to come back to them. And now they can refill their place with capital gains money and get the benefits of the opportunity zone. That's wonderful. Ashley, this was a great discussion on Opportunity Zones. Obviously, for anybody listening, you can go to ozpros.com. I'm going to leave that in the show notes below uh, if you are interested in uh, engaging with Ashley and his team to see how they can help you set up your OZ. Ashley, what other ways can uh, can the audience connect with you? Yeah, so uh, ozpros.com, and um, we've actually got um a and i think that we'll have it in the show notes as well we've got a, a promo for any of your listeners that they can get a, a discounted strategy call and you know so being the the uh you know the legal zoom for opportunity zones is great but it also makes it so that uh you know when you're trying to democratize access to it it makes you really busy and so there's yeah. lots of people that are trying to get access and so we've had to kind of go down this strategy call road and you know and we feel like we're we we have a money back guarantee on the strategy call that if we don't deliver at least double the value in that strategy call i'll refund your money on the spot and usually i'm delivering 10x worth of value and so um we do have that process and so if you follow the show notes you can schedule a strategy call with either myself i've also got a uh, an associate his name's graham allison and Graham is a uh, an MBA, Masters of Business Association, not to be confused with National Basketball Association. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's M as in Mango, not N as in Nancy, right? Uh, uh, but he worked for two governors in Ohio and did all types of economic development stuff, does all types of modeling and, um, you know, is able to help people really kind of dive into uh, how you show the after-tax returns, and then how you really maximize the benefits of different um, programs that are out there from an EDA standpoint. And so you can either schedule a call with either myself or with Graham, 
and we'd love to interact. We also field questions. Um, and then we've also got our member community, which is Ozworks Group. And um, I, I'm, I'm gonna talk to Chris who runs our Ozworks Group and we can get a complimentary membership for your listeners and we'll add that to the show notes as well. So that, that way, if people just wanna interact with other folks that are doing Opportunity Zones or look at my course or uh, you know engage with the community, they can do so through Ozworks Group. Ashley, that's very kind of you. Thanks again for coming on the show, man. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about OZs. Uh, my pleasure, Tyler. Very much appreciate it. Appreciate what you're doing here. And uh, let's go uh, Let's go make America a better place, one opportunity zone at a time. Let's do it. We'll be talking offline for sure. Uh, thank you guys for listening. If you join us live, all of the questions and the interaction, always appreciate that. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so that you get notified every time we go live. If you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review, and we will see you next week.